Marketing, a weekly podcast where we sit down and talk with marketing thought leaders and experts on the issues and topics of interest to marketers and business leaders everywhere. Now today, it's me, Nathan Hodges, Managing Director at Trinity P3, sitting down with the founder and global CEO of Trinity P3 Marketing Management Consultants, Darren Woolley. Normally we're in the opposite chairs, but there's a reason for that. Uh, Today is the day when Trinity P3 turns 20. 20 years old. So, um, happy birthday, Darren, and happy birthday, Trinity P3. You don't look a day over 20. <laughs> Thanks, Nathan. Um, it, it's, I suddenly realised I've spent more than a third of my life uh, in this business, and yet before that I used to change jobs every couple of years. So, there you go. There must be something about uh, Trinity P3. I must have a very good boss. There's, there's, yeah, exactly. You, you, you're, uh, you certainly don't have to argue with your boss anymore, do you? And your boss can't fire you, I suppose, anymore. Um, so, Darren, take me back to 20 years ago today uh, when you started this business or had the idea of starting it. What did you, what did you set out to do? What was in that? Uh, what was in the brain at that point? Well, it was actually uh, the start of the business was the culmination of almost two years. Now, you have to remember back then I was heading to my uh, 40, about to enter my 40s. You know, I was late 30s. I was uh, a, one of the creative directors at J. Walter Thompson. I was president of the Melbourne Advertising and Design Club. And I was also really heavily involved in new business. And all of those things gave me an exposure to parts of the industry I guess a lot of creative people may not see. You know, with new business, I was seeing marketers looking for new agencies. With the uh, Melbourne Advertising and Design Club, I was talking to a broad range of creative people. Mm. And I could see this gap in the marketplace. But it wasn't until I had a conversation with Reg Bryson, who was still running the Campaign Palace at the time. And he was talking about a paper call that uh, in Harvard Business Review, which said, we're moving from the three S's, which was strategy, structure, and something else, to people, purpose, and process, when suddenly the whole thing came together, because I went, that's it, P3, people, purpose, and process, helping people achieve commercial purpose through creative process, was where the, and that's what it was called, it wasn't called Trinity P3. That's right. This day, 20 years ago, it was P3. Which was very good because it was uh, the dot-com bubble, remember? So P3.com was very cool. (laughs) And so for those who don't know, you then went to Trinity P3.com. So what was, uh, or Trinity P3 as opposed to P3. So that was a bit later, but what was that about? So that was in 2007 and a lot had changed. Like when I started, uh, I had the intention of, being the sort of independent facilitator between marketers and agencies. Mm. And that was pretty much, you know, a very linear relationship. Yeah. By 2006, suddenly there was a third party heavily involved in that relationship, which was procurement and finance. Uh And so the change of name was for two reasons. One was to represent the fact that the the tripartite, the trinity, the unholy trinity, some might say, yeah. of marketers, 
their agencies and procurement was where we played as a company. Okay. The other thing was that um, it became really clear that just the P3, uh, we'd grown beyond that. You know, we're no longer a dot-com business. We're actually becoming a proper consulting business. So right. that's why we changed the name in 2007. Okay, so those first those first five years then, from when you start to when to... Uh, to about two thousand and and five six. So so, what kind of business were you were you finding yourself yourself kind of doing in those in those days, Darren? So um, it's it's really funny because when I talk to people, well, I'll, I'll be judging whether it's funny or not. But you can't <laughs> yeah. No, it's funny from the point of view that when I meet people that come to me and say I'm thinking of starting my business, how did you do it? Yeah. The, the honest truth is for the first six months, I just had lots of coffees and lunches with people. Yeah. I had this business, but I wasn't. And I had an intention of what I wanted to do, but I was really just meeting and talking to a lot of people and opportunities were dropping out of the trees, so to speak, Right. through those conversations. But almost all of them were cost consulting. It okay. was marketers, am I paying my agency too much for production? Am I paying too much for their fees? Am I paying too much for this event? It was all cost consulting, which was never my intention. I never set this up to be a cost consultant. It was about making these people, creative people and marketing people and strategic people, achieve greater results, but I not suppose, about how much you paid them. But I suppose it all comes, I mean, you know, we, we know we know you've got to follow the money to find out where the problems are most of the time, haven't you? Yeah, but it wasn't that type of uh, thinking. No. Okay. Back then, in the early 2000s, it really literally was people phoning up and going, I think I'm paying my agency too much or this TV production's too much or, you know, how much should I pay to have a website done? Right. It was very much cost consulting. It wasn't about analysing the costs to find out if there's a better way of doing things, though that would come out of it. Yeah. The intention of why we're engaged was very much about, you know, give me satis- uh, 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 comfort that I'm not being ripped off here. And that was replaced by procurement because that was the initial, uh, you know, intention of most procurement teams. Well, they always assume they're being ripped off in procurement, don't they? Of course, they never. And the other thing, of course, is that I suppose, I mean, you wouldn't, we wouldn't have built the benchmarking pool that we got if things hadn't started like that. I guess because oh, quite absolutely. an important tool to have based the business on at that stage. Okay, so that's the first five years. What changes after that in the second in the second five years? Well, the thing that I noticed was that, you know, a lot of marketers were suddenly not just having one or two agencies. It was no longer just a creative agency and a media agency. Yeah. There was suddenly this roster of agencies. And, you know, so as procurement started to take more and more responsibility for cost consulting, we found ourselves seeing the opportunity more in, well, how do you manage a roster? of agencies? How do you actually structure a roster of agencies? How do you get agencies to collaborate together? These were the bigger issues that we found ourselves answering. Now, there was still some cost consulting happening, but it was becoming minor. More and more of the projects we were doing by around 2007, 8 and 9 were much more about 
Have I got too many agencies? Mm -hmm. Have I got not enough agencies? How do I make those agencies work together? These were the sorts of challenges that started coming up. And that's when you developed the evaluating tool, isn't it? Absolutely. Seven and eight in order to monitor and measure and drive that collaboration across rosters. Yeah, I remember uh, sitting in a cafe or a bistro in New York with a guy called Marek Liss, like who, who was an ex-appraise uh, person. And I said, look, Marek, the problem I have with appraise and decide where and all of those is that they look at relationships as if they exist in isolation. The marketing team and their creative agency, yeah. the marketing team and the media agency. Yet there's no tool out there that allows me to get all of those agencies and marketing teams and get them to evaluate how well they work together. Yeah. It didn't exist, which is where evaluating came from. The whole idea of building, building the evaluating platform was to create something that went beyond that very two-dimensional view of client agency relationships to look at rosters and how they work together. Mm. And it's still a unique tool, of course. Nothing else does, nothing else does what, what that tool does. Not that I've seen, no. No. Okay. And then, of course, so, so your, your second five years then includes, includes the GFC. Yeah. <laughs> and, and look, you know, um, I have to say one of my uh, uh, big uh, failings is great moments in poor timing because I literally uh, opened in Hong Kong, an office in Hong Kong and Singapore <laughs> the week that the global financial crisis or the global recession hit in 2007. Yeah. And so, you know, it was really tough times and, you know, we really struggled. A lot of people uh, would say to me, oh, because they thought of us as cost consultants, you must be making a fortune out of cost consulting. But you imagine a marketer phones up and says, I need to cut my budget by 30%, can you help me? And we'd say, yes, we can analyse your scope of work and work out better ways of doing it. But then they'd turn to their agency and go, I've got all this work to do, but I've got 30% less money. And the agencies would go, okay, we'll do it. Yeah. So there was no work. There yeah. was literally the work dried up before my eyes. Yeah. So, so and, and also the other important plank of the business that we haven't touched on yet during those first five or 10 years is pitching. So when does that start? Well, I know a lot of people know us as pitch consultants and it's about, as we often say, 20, 25% of our business these days. But... When do you think that starts and how does, how does that start, Darren? So, uh, interestingly, again, it wasn't something that I strategically said, right, I'm going to become a pitch consultant yeah. because it wasn't even on the radar when I started. Does but, it come out of the cost side of things or does it come out of the roster side of things? When does it, when does it begin? So, a, a, a marketer called Andrew Nowicki, who was the CMO at Cadbury at the time, before they were bought by, or merged with Kraft, yeah. said to me, Darren, you do a great job at analysing our costs. This is around 2003, 2004. Right. And he said, you're doing a great job. Why don't you apply that to helping us select agencies, run tenders. You could make a lot of money doing that. And I said, Andrew, I've never even thought about it. I just thought, you know, people were doing a good job. How could I add anything to it? And he said, no, no, the level of analysis you bring to all of our agency costs would be great if you could apply that to a pitching process. So that's where we started offering a pitch process. Wow, I never, I, I, I've never heard that story. So, so, <laughs> so, but interestingly, you know, we ran a couple of pitches and I was running them based on 
my experience of being on the agency side yeah. and having gone through pitches, it was around 2005, so a couple of years later, that I went overseas because I thought they must be doing pitches much better overseas. And what I found is in almost every market, they were doing it exactly the same way. The pitch process was almost universal and flawed. It wasn't until I got to Amsterdam and a, and a guy called Hein Breck, uh, who ran a consultancy, at that stage he'd been doing it for 30 years, shared with me that in his mind the best pitch process was one where the client gets to experience the agencies as close to possible as it would be if they were working together. Like a good job interview. And yeah. he said, therefore, he, re he recommended where possible doing uh, full-day strategic workshops where the client and the prospective agency would work on a problem together. Yeah. And he'd been doing that. So, you know, I took that along with the other things that I picked up on that trip. It was about... Uh, about six weeks of traveling to you know various yeah, parts yeah. and i came back and i completely redesigned the pitch process from that point so it's a dutch process absolutely <laughs> those dutch they're always they're always ahead of the game uh right okay so that takes you to about 2010. Mm -hmm. so let's then look at the following five years i mean i know a bit about it because i was around for that but um that's right you've uh, been with me uh, half ten, the time 10 years yeah mm. i came in for a, a, a late second half substitution to change the way that the game was going is how i like to look at it but uh, so that second that's that, that third five years then 2010 to 2015 so you're coming out of the gfc there's a pitching there's a pitching and a roster function that we're doing there's less cost control less cost consulting going on what else is happening over that time that gets you to where we are now starts to get you there well not so much changing the work we did but one of the big things that changed then was we embraced the idea of inbound marketing or content marketing ah. i've been writing a blog sort of sporadically with a, not a lot of discipline since 2006 yeah and look i think this is part of just who I am and, and one of the reasons I ended up in the creative department, not account management or strategy, was that uh, I'm driven by my curiosity. Yeah. So I'd always been interested whenever, you know, we, we developed interesting websites and we'd, uh, yeah, and so when blogging came along, I started blogging, but not particularly well. And it was then around 2011 that I was introduced to Mike Morgan at High Profile Enterprises. And he looked at what we're doing and he goes, you're doing a lot of great stuff. You've just got no discipline. You've not really identified sort of things like key search terms. You don't regularly produce high quality content. It sort of happens in spurts and, and, and yeah. then great periods of nothing. He said, if you start to focus on sharing the knowledge that you've gained through a really disciplined blog, and, and from that we put together a whole content strategy, mm. which has led to blogging, videos, podcasts like this, yes. you know, the books, uh, all sorts of publications. He said, this will help you build an online presence where people will come to you. And I think it was 2011 where we really started that process. Yeah. And within... Within 12 months, we saw a 300% growth in the traffic to the website. Yeah. But more importantly, the growth was not just in Australia and New Zealand, it was global. Yeah. And yeah. it became 
for later that decade, the thing that drove us uh, to do more, you know, set up offices in London. Yeah. Though, again, there's poor timing because I opened in London the day of the vote for Brexit. Ah, uh, but that's in 2016. So that's, <coughs> the, that's the final. That's the final five years. We're not there. No, no. Jump but ahead, going, but yes. ba- going back to you know my great moments in poor timing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but that that's really if I if I pick that five years, it's really about the focus on inbound marketing. Yeah. Going from cold calling, emailing, and uh, you know, all that traditional outbound work to building a body of of on work online that's accessible to people, that positions us as, you know, I hate the term thought leaders, but, you know, positions us as people that have a interesting, informed opinion out, who are willing to share it. Because while I, I certainly noticed during that time that, that the, the work that we were doing, it was, it was, it was arriving at the door pre-qualified, first of all, and then secondly, we were asked, we were asked increasingly to move from, from pitches to roster and then from roster into marketing structure and process mm. um, increasingly over that time. Now, if I think about when I started in 2010 versus about 2015, um, you know, it's like 30, 40% of our work was mm. actually not to do with agency at all. It was mm. much more in terms of marketing and how that worked. Is that how you remember it? Or am I just well, painting it, that? Towards the end of that period, because I think it wasn't until around 2014, 15, where that was happening. And right. and for me, it was interesting because initially it was marketers who had got us in to sort out their external roster. Yes. And we call that, we don't call it roster rationalisation, we call it strategic alignment. Because what we're yeah. trying to do is align that roster of agencies to the, to the strategic requirements, yep. right? And then we're getting phone calls to say, hey, the roster's great, but we realise we're not yeah. aligned to our strategy. And, you know, you would see things like a separate digital unit. Yes. <laughs> or uh, data analytics sitting on the other side of the organisation. Yeah. And you're seeing this fragmentation within marketing, which we'd already addressed externally. And so we're then being asked to do the same internally. Yeah. So, yes, it, it would say, uh, I'd say you're right in that it started happening during that third five years. Yeah. But I think it consolidated in the last five years. Yeah. So let's go to that last five years then, because that's been, um, that seems to just to transform what we do. I, 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 I don't know. There's a progression here, but there's also a discontinuity because there's, when I think about what we're up to now in 2020 versus what we were doing in 2015, there's, there's, there's a whole focus on aligning everything that goes on in marketing. So strategy, structure, capability, process, and and culture, and then looking at the skill sets and the capabilities that are required to get all that aligned. And it's a very different kind of conversation we're having now, or, or well, I'll say that, they're also the same conversations we're having as well, year in, year out. Um, what, what's your, what's yeah. your, what's your subjective take on it? Go on. I'm wondering if it's um, that the market's evolved or just our approach to it has evolved. Go on. In that, I think, as we've worked on these problems over the years, we've deepened our knowledge and therefore uh, what we look for when a project comes. Because I would say what drives people to contact us is still the same thing as it was 20 years ago, in that it's still things like, um, you know, 
I'm not sure if, you know, how do I get better use of my money? Am yeah. I paying too much? Have I got the right agencies? Uh, you know, is our marketing team the right structure? You know, yeah. they're still the same questions. What's happened is that we've learned about complexity, right? Mm. Back, back when I started the business, I said to you know, earlier, it was very linear. It mm. was pretty much agency and marketer. And then when we got into rosters, we started to look and understand the complexity of how rosters work together. Mm. And then we started looking at the complexity of how within organisations and how marketing sits within that organisation and how it interacts with its external agencies, but also how it it Mm. interacts internally. This is becoming more and more focused on understanding complexity. Now, that's, that's a good observation, isn't it? Because you could also look at the marketing industry and the practice of marketing and the proliferation of data points and 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 channels over that twenty years, and go well. Marketing has actually realised that or the marketing as, an, as, a, as a discipline has realised that actually things are a hell of a lot more complex than they thought they were when they could just get a TV megaphone and shout at people and tell them what to do. So, so I suppose it's it's gone hand in hand with marketing over that time as mm. well because. I mean, marketing is in many ways the same now as it was then in terms of some of the techniques, but the awareness of the complexity of the task and the interdependence of all of the elements is what sends a lot of marketers into a spin these days. Except that I think uh, one of the lessons we've learnt about complexity is that you don't solve complexity by trying to do everything. You solve complexity by understanding it, mapping it, you know, acknowledging the complexity that exists. And not panicking. And and then (laughs) look for what are the things that you can do within that complex system to bring about change. I think a lot of of people are being trapped in the thought that they have to do everything, right? That because they've got more options than ever before, they have to do every option. Except that they've now got the same or less resources in real term than they had before. And so that's why one of the things about strategic alignment is actually allowing the strategy, which is the thing that tells you or informs you on where you should be focusing. It, it helps inform you on which of the options you should be choosing mm. and investing in and which ones you should you know, either minimise or abandon completely. And whether that's from, you know, let's take agency... Uh, roster structures. You know, we hear this conversation all the time. Oh, consolidate to a holding company solution where it's just one. And we've seen Publicis One and you know, and, and uh, WPP yeah. and others have gone down that track. Whereas then the opposite is, oh, well, let's diversify and get all of the best of breed. You know, let's cherry pick the ones that can... Re- and, and it's seen as a, a dichotomy. You know, it's yeah, one or the it's other. one or the other, yeah. But we're, what we've come to understand is there's actually an infinite array of options between those two extremes. And it's finding the right version of that for the particular complexity of the problem that you're dealing with. Mm. is the smart thing to do. It's not a cookie-cutter approach of it's this or this. And I think that's the sad thing about the industry dialogue is that almost every issue, it gets turned into a, yeah. a, a, a one, or, one of two Left options. Left or right, black or white, up yeah. or down. Yeah. So it's, you know, on, on transparency, you're either transparent or you're not. Yeah. You know, in programmatic it's, or in-house, you're either in-house or you're not. It's not that at all. Yeah. 
This is what complexity allows you to do. Binary choices. Binary choice is the bane of everyone's existence. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's because complexity isn't about binary yeah. choices. Comple- you know, it's the saying the world is not black and white. It's an, a million different colours. And you need to do the work and the thinking to be able to actually make the informed decision on which part of the rainbow you're going to exist in. So I'm I'm also thinking that's that's reflected in our remuneration IP now, isn't it? Because how many how many different remuneration models did we count up a couple of years ago? Oh well, we've got 12, or... 12 base ones. Yeah, and then on top <laughs> of that, there's an infinite number of versions or hybrids yeah. that exist in between. That. And even that's evolving again now with what yeah. we're doing with with um, the the. Um, the SMUs, yeah, the SMUs out of, the, yeah. out of what Michael Farmer's been up to, yeah. So again, that's 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 gone to another. Although that's a podcast for another day because that's a future-facing one. That's yeah. twenty twenty. That's that's other stuff. So okay, um, so let's just ask some cheesy questions here, then, Darren. So uh, um, and I know you're not a man for regrets, but but give me one regret on the way through here. What 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 should you have done, or what shouldn't you have done? What's okay. the biggest one? So, so I, I touched on it, which is I seem to have the worst timing when it comes to making decisions. You know, the number of times that I've uh, uh, tried things and it wasn't that the idea was wrong, it was just the wrong time. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, opening in, uh, in Singapore and Hong Kong at the start of the GFC, opening in London when uh, Brexit, the vote for Brexit occurred. Um, Building, uh, you know, there's been a number of software platforms that no longer exist that I've invested in and <laughs> built because they seem like great ideas at the time, but, you know, it, they were too early. Um, in fact, it's one of the things that frustrates me in that, you know, evaluating we built in 2007, but it's only now that people are really starting to appreciate the idea of being able to measure collaboration. Yeah. So, you know, would you say it's 10 years or more before it's time? Potentially. Yeah. You know, I think, I think uh, this is why I'm not a funny guy because I don't have the secret of good comedy, which is timing. No, I've got the worst timing in the world. You're definitely not a funny guy, that's no. for sure. And, um, and probably the last, the last question, what are you most proud of? Um... Oh look, I think the people I work with. You know, well, you'd have to say that because I'm I'm interviewing. You. No, no. Um, beyond that, uh, like when I started the business, I looked around and almost every other consultancy that was like me in the industry was one or two people, mm. and they pretty much created a business to give themselves a job. And I didn't want to do that. I actually wanted to create a business. I didn't call it. Uh, Woolly Consulting, because first of all, that's a terrible family name uh, to put with something like consulting. I called it P3 because I wanted to create something that wasn't um, about my name Mm. and about who I was. And then I wanted to build it so that it became a place where people with great skills and great knowledge could come and almost be entrepreneurs within an entrepreneurial structure. I didn't want to fill it up with lots of employees. Mm. I wanted to fill it up with people that had a drive to build something together and uh, share in the the rewards that comes with it and also obviously make a commitment to the hard times as well. Mm. You know, I wanted to have uh, in some ways partners without it being partners, you know, because ultimately I take the uh, financial responsibility. But I think along the way there's been... You know, terrific people that have got great 
uh, knowledge, great expertise, were probably not ever able to build something the same for whatever reason, but they could participate in this and have a sense of ownership because their contribution and their reward came from their efforts inside that. And uh, yeah, uh, that, that that's definitely true. And, and also, because we've because you've you've hunted down people with quite deep specialist skill sets along the way, and that knowledge has rubbed off on Trinity P3's IP on the way through. It's ended up as quite a quite a kind of bespoke boutique marketing, unrelenting marketing focus here, a deep, a deep vein of, of experience and IP around the practice and, and the structure and the process of marketing, hasn't it? Mm. I mean, it's not a, we're, not a, we're, not a, we're not a general consultancy. No, and, and a lot of times, yeah, I get advice from, uh, you know, people that say, oh, you should broaden the offering, you know, the work you do could work in the legal industry, it could work in the account, you know, other professional services. And I go, but I'm not passionate about legal or accounting. (coughs) Yeah, I'm passionate about marketing. I I think marketing is when it's when it's well practiced, when it's well implemented, when it's strategic when there's strategic discipline, it's unbelievable in what it can achieve. I just see that there are so many challenges and obstacles that get stuck in the way. And in some ways, you know, what excites me is working with marketers, working with their agencies to actually eliminate those so that people can get on with the job of actually achieving the great results that marketing can deliver. And if you look at, if you look at what we, if you think about what we've seen in the last year or so in, in marketing, um, the job is still there to be done, isn't it? There's plenty in the way, getting in the way, stopping the great success and the potential that, that, that is there. What, what, what are you seeing at the moment? What, what will we get to work on in the next five years, do you think? Well, I think, uh, you know, and, and in fact, there's an article uh, that came out in um, December by Bain where they've identified, Bain um, Consulting yeah. uh, has written an article where they, they've agreed with something that I've been observing for the last six to 12 months, and that is that most CEOs and most boards don't truly understand the role of marketing. They have a superficial, almost um, archetype of what mm. marketing is. And in fact, Bain identified three different um, archetypes. Right. And, and yet none of them, no one marketer could actually fulfill all three. So they end up choosing one and then, you know, wonder why within two years, three years, that market has moved on. I think what, what we need to see is that, you know, marketing needs to align with the objectives of the CEO and the board on the basis of what marketing is actually best at doing, hmm. right? That we need to have these conversations, not just appoint CMOs and give them objectives that they really can't influence, yeah, and and I'll give you a prime example of that. Everyone's talking about customer experience. Yep. Now you appoint the CMO and you go, you're in charge of customer experience, and the CMO goes, great, rubs their hands together, and then says, right. So can I influence the retail experience? No. Can I influence the online experience? No. That's the IT department. What about the call centre? No. That's sales. Well, how do you actually manage customer experience when you have no authority? 
over most of the customer touch points. And the only things you really control are the comms. Yeah. You know, the advertising comps. So just putting a beard and glasses on the customer experience yeah. of the company. So this is where there needs to be more conversations. And I think this yeah. is going to be the future for us. We've been looking at roster structures. We've been looking at contracts and, and remuneration. We've then turned it internally and looked at marketing structures and marketing process and looking at KPIs and budgets and the way budgets are actually applied. I think the next step is to then align all of that back in with the CEO and the board around, okay, here are these amazing resources. They can do a whole lot of stuff. What do you want them to do? And what authority and resources and budget are you going to give them to allow them to do it? And then how are you going to measure their success or otherwise against those particular measures? And I think that's a really interesting part because, you know, people uh, bemoan the fact that marketing seems to have fallen away. I think, has it fallen away or is it just that a lot of organisations really aren't sure how to harness the potential that exists within their marketing function? And that would give a really great focus then to galvanising what the capabilities and the skill sets are that are required in marketing for the next five years and also the way that it's articulated and advocated within an organisation. So, Absolutely. Geez, that sounds like a lot of work to do, doesn't it? Well, <laughs> it's interesting because I think, you know, we are going through a transformation ourselves, and you're aware of this, mm. which is in the past we've been very analytical uh, and we can, we'll continue. But I think the focus going forward is going to be much more about the human resources, the yeah. human capital, because... I'm sure we, you know, we both have worked in the advertising industry and marketing, and you know, people talk about it being a people business. That's going to be the next frontier as far as how do we then give the the resources and the support that allow those people in those roles to be the best they can be. Yeah. And again, I think I think to do that with a with an unrelenting marketing focus. I think is 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 going to be the key to that, isn't it? Because that that whole world can be so, it can be so fluffy, and it can be very easy to hang a, a, a shit outside your your company and say we we do leadership, we do, um, you know, we do resilience, we do, oh uh, no, NLP, we, we, we do this, but but it needs to be if if when we do it, I think it's got to be it's got to be a marketing based, real thing. So I mean, it's always been a challenge for me because. We are a niche that's competing with lots and lots of generalists. Yeah. There are lots of business consultants, management consultants, that touch on marketing. But marketing is just one small part of everything they do. Whereas we're only about marketing. Yeah. You know, if someone came to me and said, oh, uh, can you help us with our you know, operational no, it's not something we're passionate about. Yeah. There it's are not other something... people better better yeah. equipped than us. And we, That's right. we do say this, don't we? We do say this to people. There are other people better equipped to handle that side of it than us. Yeah. And so, you know, but then you get, uh, you miss out on opportunities because it becomes easy just to bundle marketing in with everything else and flick it off to a, um, a general management consultant who treats marketing as just another box to tick. And, and the only upside of that is almost invariably 
at some point down the track and having 20 years to look back on, you, you end up getting called in to help fix the generalists. What, yeah, what was yes. screwed up by the generalist. Because yeah. they almost invariably go to a cookie cutter approach when they get to marketing, yeah. which is it's a decentralized marketing, let's make it centralized, it's centralized, but let's make it decentralized. Yeah. They use that binary choice rather than what we've developed by understanding the complexity within marketing, which is which of the thousands of options are available is going to be the best one and working with the stakeholders to help them make an informed decision about how they want to work together. Yeah. Well, it looks like there's plenty to do for the next 20 years, Darren. So uh, you're halfway through, are you? (laughs) No, maybe, you know, I've always had uh, this thought that uh, I wanted to create something that would last for 100 years. But that doesn't mean I've got to be the one running it. No. And so there's always plenty of opportunity for other people to step up and take over. So who knows? Maybe maybe I'll be like old Mr. Grace, you know, uh, in 20 years' time. <laughs> you, people in the Trinity P3 will be talking about, uh, oh, yes, Mr. Woolley's coming in today. You You're know? all doing very well. Carry on. <laughs> maybe, maybe in 10 years' time, Darren, we'll do a podcast where you say exactly those words. Exactly. Great. Well been a pleasure talking to you. I'll continue talking to you after this because um, we're in the office and we've got loads to do. So um, thanks for listening to Managing Marketing. Happy Happy birthday birthday to us. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to us.